can you just start by saying your name and your position here? Yeah. Hi, my name's Carl Hennigan. I am Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine in the Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. I also work as an urgent care general practitioner in the NHS and I do that in evenings and weekends. Did you say urgent care or aging care? Uh, sorry, urgent care. Urgent care, right, yes. So, yeah, in the sort, yeah, the out-of-hours setting, yes. the work that goes on in the evenings and the weekends. Yeah, okay. And... Um, Without telling me your entire life story, because we don't quite have time for that, yeah. can you just uh, talk me through your career to date, from where you first got interested in medicine? Yeah, so I, I actually studied medicine at the University of Oxford. I came here in 1994, so we're coming up for nearly three decades. I've been at Oxford and I've stayed here ever since. And what happened while I was a medical student, I met a certain chap called David Sackett, who was the first ever professor of evidence medicine and the director of the Centre for EVM. And he had a profound impact on my whole career and what happened next. Just because of the way of thinking about decision making, that you can integrate best available evidence with your clinical experience and expertise and patient values. You take that together, that's what evidence-based medicine is, how it informs decision making. I then went on to train as a general practitioner and then ended up in an academic career pathway that led to me being appointed as the sort of director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine and a clinical reader in EBM in 2010. And subsequent to that, I've become a professor of evidence-based medicine here. But while that's been going on, I still maintain an active career as a clinician by working as a general practitioner. And I work in the out-of-hours setting where we do generally visits and urgent care visits, for instance, into care homes. And uh, I liked the out of hours because it fits with my sort of chaotic lifestyle so I can work it round and it works with my family and so I tend to work evenings and weekends and in the daytime I do about 50% of my time is research and about 50% of my time is teaching and building capacity and supervising. Mm, very good. Mm. So let's just unpack evidence-based medicine. I mean, I think when I first heard of it, and I guess for a lot of people, there'd be a kind of moment of surprise. Yeah. What, you mean all these years doctors have been treating us without evidence? So how, how did the, the term arise? What, what was different about evidence-based? Yeah, it's, everybody thinks that all of healthcare is built on evidence, but actually there's been a long history and tradition of so-called quackery in, in healthcare. Everybody wants the silver bullet, the magic bullet to their ails and their cures, if you like. But it was probably about the late 80s when the concept of evidence-based medicine came to the fore because what was happening then is lots of medicine was practiced on low-quality evidence or on opinions. I know what to do best. And one of the key changes was, was the use of high-quality evidence, particularly for drugs and vaccines, the use of randomized controlled trials. Now, just to say... In the current COVID pandemic, everybody will understand the impact and you'll probably interview people who've done the recovery trial, which looked at certain treatments like dexamethasone. A large national multi-centre trial provides high quality evidence about decision making. Now that's a superb example of evidence-based medicine. But if you go back to the 80s and 90s, there were very few randomised controlled trials that impacted on healthcare. And so there was a huge growth into can we develop high quality evidence? And that was the start of evidence-based practice. And there are an important aspect. How do you determine what is high-quality evidence? What are the potential biases? What are the competing interests and the conflict that might distort the evidence base? You put all that together. My job is to try and understand how you take the evidence from the 
bench, if you like, to actual patient care and decisions. And there's a huge amount of evidence out there at any one point. There's probably about 40,000 randomised control trials each year. There are about 2 million articles indexed on PubMed. So it's, it's like looking for the needle in the haystack, mm. if you like. What's a high-quality evidence that impacts on patient care? And now, tell, me, tell me about systematic reviews, yeah. because that was another yeah. part of it, wasn't So it? That, that also came, so there's a very, in about the mid-90s, Oxford was very much at the centre of the development of evidence-based medicine. David Sackett moved from Canada to Oxford to establish the first centre for EBM. Ian Chalmers was based up the road, developed the Cochrane Collaboration, which started up in North Oxford, actually, as a group of about 70 people who were interested in systematic reviews. And the point about systematic reviews is you're really saying, look, when you have a clinical question, what we don't want you to do is cherry-pick the eight bits of evidence that suit your answers. You're basically saying, let's collate all of the evidence at certain levels, so for instance, all the randomised control trials, and then look at the aggregate effect. What do they say when we systematically review the evidence? And, and, and it means you have a clear question, you try and find all the evidence relevant to that question, you appraise the quality, what's the high quality and the low quality, and then you synthesise it, normally with what's called a meta-analysis, or and we look at that, it's called a forest plot, and when you do that, that generally is the highest level of evidence that informs decision-making. Now, one of the key components also of evidence-based practice, and that's been interesting in the COVID pandemic, is then how do you communicate that to inform decision-making? There's been a big change probably in the three decades I've been involved in medicine from what we call a, you know, a doctor-centric viewpoint, the doctor knows best, to actually more of patient-centred medicine. We want to inform the decisions so that actually you participate in that decision making. Ultimately, it's our decision. And therefore, communicating the benefits. Our decision as patients. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, our decision as patients. I'm a patient myself. I want to be informed all the time. So that is about informing the benefits and the harms and coming to a decision about what's the best treatment for you now. And that's where the patient values come in. Because we may look at certain treatments and look at them differently. And some people presented with the same information will make different views about what to do next. And that's okay, because the key is, have you been fully informed? Can you inform the decision you're about to make? And that's why I find EBM is fascinating, but actually it's still in its infancy. Much if you go to departments here like physiology and anatomy, they've been around for hundreds of years. The concept of evidence-based medicine is about three decades old, yeah, really. Yeah. However, over time, people have been coming to these decisions about what type of evidence should we use to inform decisions. And is, so you've talked about uh, randomised controlled trials uh, and obviously systematic reviews that, that kind of winnow those to, to mm. get the, the answer from. Are there other kinds of evidence? Is that the only kind of evidence? No, it's not. So the, it's a misnomer to think. So the, the key is it's the best available evidence to answer the question. So, for instance, we have a whole part of our centre that looks at qualitative research. You know, it's not just... Sometimes you might want to ask questions like, why do people not take vaccines as prescribed? And that's a why question. Well, then you have to go and interview and You have to talk to them like this and go, can you talk to me about why you make these decisions? What are the barriers? What are the facilitators? So it means it's appropriate to the question. Sometimes when we look at harms, the only evidence available is observational data because you can't intervene when there's some harmful issue at hand. 
And that, the best example of that will be smoking. The, one of the most famous studies ever done in Oxford was Richard Dole's study, which was a 50-year cohort of doctors and their smoking habit. When that was started in the 50s, 80% of doctors smoked. The idea that 80% of doctors smoke now would be ridiculous. But actually, we were followed up for 50 years. And that exposure, if you were a smoker of 20 cigarettes a day, on average, you would live 10 years less than somebody who has never smoked. And that was an important finding because it wasn't until the sort of 74, I think, when actually warnings came on cigarette packets that this is harmful. So the key is people say there's only randomized trials and that's all you should make decision. That's, that's incorrect. It's matching the evidence to the type of question you have at hand. Mm -hmm. And then we have other studies like diagnostic studies. So we have to have the evidence base for diagnosis as well. Is this test accurate? Does it actually pick out those with the disease or not? And that's incredibly important to do. And people recognize that within the COVID pandemic is we've had this huge amount of testing, whether it's PCR testing or lateral flow testing. And we ask the questions all the time about the accuracy of these testings. Do they actually derive benefit? Do they pick out those people truly have COVID or not as be the case? And they're, there's another aspect of evidence-based practice and EBM. Mm, mm. So what were the questions before we got to COVID, before we get to COVID, what were the main questions that you were interested in? Oh, we've had a huge amount of questions over time. I mean, it's, you have to how, think. How big's your centre? So there's about, there's about 25 people in the centre. Mm, mm. We've got about 130 to 140 MSc students who would do a part-time evidence-based healthcare programme and about 40 DPhil students. So. That's why I said I do a lot of teaching and supervising, and the questions they bring to me are always what I call, I have a light bulb moment. When somebody comes in the room and says, I have this question, I think, yeah, that's a really interesting, important question, and if we knew the answer, we'd be able to improve practice tomorrow. And I think that's the important, there are lots more uncertainties than you consider in healthcare. Then there are also the, the other aspects where we may have done something and there's been harm over time. So some of the work we've done has been approached by patients. We looked into the harms of metal hips or of transvaginal surgical mesh. And recently a, a treatment used in the 60s and 70s called Primidos, which was a hormone pregnancy test. So we do all that type of work. And then here we do generally work that looks at primary care in the community, preventive treatments, those treatments that you use and we have a vast array of evidence at any one time but we tend to focus on the the, the, the evidence that's like the systematic reviews that inform the guidelines that will change patient care whereas many people will be in the basic sciences in Oxford translating developing vaccines developing new drugs and taking them forward into the pipeline we don't do that we do the applied health sciences if you like and we're trying to say, right, faced with this evidence, what's the decision going to be now? And that's, and you can think about it, because I said there's so many new trials published every year, 40,000. It's like, a, it's like a, a moving wheel, if you like, on the hamster on the wheel. And the key is, what we're always looking to do is, if we understood the answer to this, would it actually make a difference to patient care? Mm. And, and how is it communicated to doctors? That's... That's well, actually, yeah, so, so you know, what happens now is the systematic review will go into guidelines and then you've got places, people like NICE. And if you think about it again, NICE has only been in operation since 1999. Mm. And so they're only two decades in. And 
One of the interesting issues, I gave a talk tonight in the pandemic about what's next, and they run into this problem of they've got thousands of guidance, pieces of technical information and guidance, so they've got to keep it up to date. They've got to produce new information. And they're struggling with that because how do you maintain this knowledge base and then ultimately inform individuals in practice? But what we teach about is the idea that you have to pull information towards you when you have a question as a clinician. And you have to have the skills to be able to find the right evidence and in finding the right evidence, be able to appraise the quality and understand the effect size to impart that knowledge to patients in front of you. Some things are ingrained in the system, like what to do in a heart attack. The evidence is very well established and you don't need to question that. But many areas, as it evolves, like cancer care, People come to me and ask all sorts of questions. Oh, there's a new chemotherapy for breast cancer. What do you think? You know, and the answer is, well, I have to look at the evidence. I don't have this story in my mind of all this evidence. So I, I, what we teach is the skills of how do you access that information and evidence? And in accessing it, how can you pull it towards you? And then appraise the quality. And that's, that's important skills for doctors, but it, I think it's been interesting in the COVID pandemic increasingly I think the public has an appetite for evidence-based practice. They are increasingly saying, hold on a minute, I'm going to question this. I want to understand if we're going to intervene in this way. Where's the evidence? And I found that quite invigorating, actually. The public has almost tipped itself into trying to say we want to be evidence-based. Whether that will continue will be interesting to see, but I think there's a, a bit of a movement from more so the public becoming more and more aware and I think they become more aware because of the internet. They can go and, re in a way you couldn't do two decades Dr. ago. Google. Yeah, you couldn't go and say, I'm going to look this up. I'm going to. And so I think increasingly will be knowledgeable patients who will prod and push doctors to say, well, I've been reading a bit of evidence. When that happened to me, I think that's fantastic. But if you, it, you have to be now aware and ready for that in modern society. And I think that will continue to evolve over time. Right, so I think we finally got to COVID. So yeah. the question I'm asking everybody is, can you remember where you were or what you were doing when you first heard about it? What, what was your oh, yeah, so I first heard about it in January, mm. you know, and it was then murmurings, and it was probably January and February, and I remember in early February doing two things. I wrote an article for the BMJ Opinion about, I looked at the excess mortality. So one of the things as a clinical epidemiologist, we're interested in the data and the numbers. And uh, the Office for National Statistics, which probably everybody is aware of now, produces great data, and it produces data on things like deaths. And it does that every week, and it's been doing that for years. And we look at that, oh, there's interest in excess mortality. And I wrote an article about where are we now, and, and, and it was interesting because what was happening in early February, we had what we call, normally you say you have a five-year average, and you either have it's in excess or not in excess. And actually it was trending under at that moment in time. We'd had a very mild winter coming in. And my point was to say, actually, it's what you're really looking to understand what's going on. You have objective markers, and death is, a very, is ultimately the objective marker. Now, we can have some arguments about the causation, but ultimately, when a death is recorded, it is recorded in this country in a way that, you know, within five days you have to go to, a, to 35 a death. That gets pulled into the ONS, and each week they produce an amazing amount of data that says here's the sort of 
age group, the location, the sex, and all that's really helpful. So I wrote that piece, and then I remember I did a podcast with the BMJ about coronaviruses and what are they. And it was just a very interesting time because at that point, I think nobody really knew very much about these features like mm. epidemiology, mm. viruses, and there were very few people, I'd say a few hundred in the world, who were, who were interested in this area. And we'd been interested in it because in the last pandemic, going back to 2009, which is the swine flu pandemic, which uh, we did a lot of work in that on the antivirals, drugs like Tamiflu. Yeah. And we'd spent four and a half years looking systematically reviewing the evidence on Tamiflu. And one of the key areas which we changed the methods was we found that about 60% of the evidence had never been published. And that's called publication bias. Mm. And we went and got from the uh, manufacturers, the clinical study, study reports, which are huge documents, but they're the documents that underlie all what happens in the trial. And we used them, and it took us four years to produce that systematic review. So it's interesting, many of the interesting people who were the big names you'll, you'll hear, like the chief scientist officer, like Patrick Valance, was the head of GSK at the time. Mm. And GSK produced Sanamavir, and Zanamavir was one of the drugs that we looked at and he, his company supplied us with the full study reports and I'd contacted him at that moment in time. So there was a group of people that we were aware coming in and I think, so it was that February, but I think, I think it's fair to say in that February that there was a certain element of, mm, is this going to be a bit like the SARS-1 outbreak yeah. where there was a lot of noise and actually it petered out. Mm. And I think, you know, where it all started to change was when you sort of saw the, the, the significant outbreaks in Northern Italy. And I think that Northern Italy moment, which was about three or four weeks preceding where we were in, in the UK, was a significant game changer in sort of what's gonna come next. And I think there are interesting features about the outbreak in Northern Italy that actually could explain lots of interesting issues about what happened at that period in time but I think then it moved on very rapidly. Um, for me interestingly I worked uh, the week preceding lockdown I think that was about the 16th or 17th the weekend before we started to go into lockdown. I remember I worked the weekend and what as an urgent care GP mm. and uh, that involved me doing visits and it's a very interesting position to be a physician when visits like that, we get calls and we'll go out and I'll go out to a care home and you'll go to a care home and on the door it'll be like, we've got COVID in this care home. And that gives you a very, you know, it makes you, it makes you think and reflect about everything you're about to do. The world's telling you not to go into these places and you're going, oh, I'm thinking, what? I booked this shift today. Was that a good idea? But actually, the problem was at that moment in time, and this is one of the contributors to, I think, what I consider as the panic measures, is we didn't have any personal protective equipment and neither did the care homes. So, and there didn't seem to be any plan in place. And, and that lack of equipment meant that there was a real big hole in the sort of plan, that somehow something was missing. 
Because when faced with an unknown, you do want to be in that position at that moment in time and say, look, I need to take precautions. And, and actually, many of my colleagues were in a position that we just didn't have the equipment. Mm. And I think that was, for me, a real position where I said, hmm, we've got a problem. And in that problem, see, there were two issues. There seemed to be a huge knowledge deficit. As I said, there were just lots of issues that people weren't aware of. And second is there wasn't a very clear plan about the action of what to do next. And uh, about 72 hours later, I, on a Tuesday, I got a fever, a cough, and uh, picked up COVID. And so did my wife. And when the world country went into lockdown, we was already in our 14 days quarantine at that moment in time. And, uh, you know, and so a lot of issues and thought processes were coming together for what the, the position I took next and what I thought was the major need was for us to use our skills to produce things like the evidence COVID service but also many features that we spent the last two years have been trying to improve the decision making and through informing the decision because I think a lot of people and journalists particularly politicians the public have had to come to what's an, a respiratory pathogen? What does it mean? How does it act? What can you do to make a difference? And how should you go about that? So that's sort of the journey in, if you like. In, in, and, and I guess, you know, very profound thinking about in that moment in time, where were we and what was happening? Mm -hmm. Why? Or, or, is it... Well, I was going to say, why is it so difficult? Is it... Is it is it, is it actually very difficult to get certainty on a new disease like that? Yeah, I, look, I, there are many areas of healthcare where there's more uncertainty than you consider, particularly in terms of prevention. You know, treating people with high blood pressure. The majority of people who have drug treatment for, for high blood pressure will never benefit from that treatment. Uh, and so in, in, in certain areas, there's much more uncertainty. Now, at the outset of a new pathogen, there are certain questions that you want to start asking about the behavior of the virus and try and understand that very quickly. So, for instance, one of the key attributes of a virus, if it's pandemic and pandemic theory, suggests that all members of society should be equally affected. So if you go back to the 1918 influenza outbreak, Spanish flu, you see that actually young people were actually disaffected and many of those died. Mm. And so when you have that, so for instance, if you see children and young people dying, you know you've got a new pathogen and it has a severity that actually is a real problem. But actually it was very quickly aware and we looked at the data and said actually there's a very significant problem here with age. That the mortality as you get older significantly goes up and actually in young people are virtually unaffected, in particularly in terms of mortality, which is not the same for all respiratory viruses. So there are influenza attacks under fives and particularly under ones. Viruses like RSV, really detrimental to under ones. We send a lot of those children into hospital. But this virus, 75% of the deaths were in over 75. And those under 75 were actually those with comorbidities, and subsequently the data came out about 90-95% either in them, them two categories. 
Well, that's operating much more like a seasonal pathogen. And that's one of the key elements there. Where do you direct your interventions to? Who do you have to look after? What should you do next? And these are the important questions that emerged very quickly. But early on, there was much more of a need to inform the public, the media and the policy. And so in the first six to eight weeks, I remember, so I, I came back to work. I had about two weeks off feeling unwell and it took about another two weeks and I was back in action by the sort of towards the end of April. And, and within a month, um, what had happened is by the time I'd gone back to urgent care, it was like it was completely different. The plan had got into place, but it took about a month to get into place. But what was interesting was the, the, the difference between, I call it, it's in my back garden, I've got this COVID hut where I work from, and, that, and, and while everybody's in lockdown, if you go back, end of April, May, it was incredibly nice weather, wasn't it, in that period of time? And there was a sense of everybody was in lockdown, and there was information being produced. Much of it was not just uncertain, some of it was taking viewpoints about worst case scenarios or, and we were just saying, look, the job here is to try and be really objective. And interesting, when I went back to work, it was quite, it was quite therapeutic to go into work, to be honest. And, but what was really interesting is how quiet it was in the world. And actually it was, it, what, was what concerned me at that moment point is it was also very quiet in urgent care in a way that I've never seen before because we had that message protect the NHS. Mm. And I think people were taking that too far mm. because they were fearful. And we've had this problem with people with ongoing issues where they started to present late and were, it was worse where it normally present much earlier. And, and I think that's one of the, the big issues in terms of we jumped into this lockdown that had never been tried, never been tested, and all was considered was something that wasn't viable. And I think there's going to be ongoing debates for the next hundred years about what the values are of lockdowns and restrictions. And there's going to be people on either side continue to make arguments about what was the right thing to do. But I spent about six or eight weeks, got very quickly drawn into a, we have a lot of connections in the media. And I had to spend about eight weeks and did a weekly seminar for about 40 to 50 journalists just about what the ONS death figures mean how to interpret them. And so they come out on a Tuesday and at one o'clock, Science Media Centre would have a briefing and we present the data and said, here's what you might want to think about and look at. And so it was an exercise of working with the media to try and inform what was going on and how you might interpret the data. So what was going on was lots of older people dying and a lot of them in care homes. Yeah, so that was, you know, I'm pointing that out. So for instance, um, we went into lockdown and what was interesting if you looked at the data is the outbreaks in care homes continued to go up mm. for about another two weeks mm. and about 30 percent of the deaths were in care homes mm. and so generally if you, you that was if you look at that you think oh that's where we should be putting 30 percent of our resources that's still a big issue for us to argue and point out what i call is the department of the obvious there's a problem here and there isn't much high quality evidence to inform what happens in care home, but there is a lot of observational data. For instance, the number of staffing reduces the mortality. Those homes that have clinical examinations on a daily basis have lower mortality. Uh, the size of the home can make a difference. And in, in America, they have these greenhouse homes. 
where there are only about 10 or 12 people it's a big and but they have better staff ratios and and they don't have this problem where you've got these super-sized care homes so if they have an outbreak they can't manage it mm -hmm. there are other, there are other interesting issues with the elderly which we've looked into because one of the problems when you're elderly is you get this concept called immunosenescence that basically your immune system starts to slowly wear down so it just doesn't become as reactive and we've noticed this for some time because one of the key things about the very elderly is for instance if they have a urinary tract infection well a young person will just say i've got burning stinging and a fever and i'm unwell but actually if you look at the evidence in elderly people they may prevent with something like off legs confusion they don't have the traditional falling over. yeah falling over and that's because they may have had the infection on board for a week or two and actually they're getting seriously unwell but they don't mount the same immune response which is the fever and that's the same probably in the care home population that actually when you go in there you see that actually you can end up with a lot of really unwell people but nobody's actually noticed it yet and then you've got staff going from one to the other so it's practically impossible to manage that outbreak with the current systems we have in place and, and to date, we've still not sorted out that care home issue. And we've not sorted out social care. It's a big issue. And as the population ages, you basically have more of a problem with respiratory pathogens. And so I'll see people go, well, this is not the common cold. And the common cold is not a problem. And I go, yeah, that's correct. But actually, if you take a virus like rhinovirus and put it in a care home, it's devastating. So if in the wrong population, the cold. That's the cold. Yeah. yeah, but in the wrong population with immunosenescence and poor health, who are vulnerable, it can be devastating in that environment. And I don't think we've learned how to consider this issue of risk, and a lot of it's got lost in the pandemic. But I think that's a good a, a, a example of what we did. One of one of the things we did early on, as well, we we. I work with a lot of statisticians, I'm a clinical epidemiologist and we just love looking at the data and we all had a lot of spare time because we were stuck in a cabin and at home and we could talk to each other and go what's going on. And very early on it was very apparent for instance the way the data was reported was being, I don't think it was people doing it on purpose, I just think they didn't understand what the data was. So what happens is the way the data gets reported through NHS England and Public Health England, on a Tuesday they'd always dump in a lot of data because the data would come in from care homes, from hospitals, and they'd say there's been 1,600 deaths today. But that was the date of reporting those deaths, not the day they actually occurred. So we did simple things, and actually NHS England were the first to come on this and said, mm, these distribute back about two weeks. And they actually much, look much more like a normal distribution than you saying deaths have gone up fourfold today, and we're going, no, they're actually coming down. And, and so we had this at odds where we was making statements going, deaths are coming down and the media reporting they're going up fourfold and people were latching onto that. And so we were just trying to clearly correct the data so you could inform the decisions. And we've continued to do that throughout. And I, and I think that's been helpful. But the idea that you produce data is it's incredibly important that it's accurate. Now, it's a bit like throwing darts at a board, there's a bullseye. And accuracy means you're near the bullseye. But what we get with a lot of data is it's precise. 
So the darts might be very near together to each other, but it might be some way from the bullseye. So there's a, this concept of accuracy versus precision. Mm. And we get lots of precision in the modern world because we get loads of data, big data. But often accuracy is missing. And the job is to hone in on that information and try and go, right, what's happening in care help? And, and, and the second area, for instance, where there were lots of problems and still are, are hospital-acquired infections. And that's been an interesting area. And I, and I think we've looked into that. So we've continued to look in areas. But one of the things we also did early on, which is develop the Oxford COVID Evidence Service to just put this information out there. Mm. And it had a so huge how, how did that operate? Well, we have a website, the CBM website, mm. that actually I established and helped establish in 1995. I mean, I'd only just about started turning the internet on at those days. And I remember we populated a website with evidence and facts and how to do and it and it, i've been involved in developing it ever since and we've always ha i've always had this job of or part of my job is to communicate what the evidence is and what it means and, and actually there were just lots of gaps in the evidence base like nobody had a, what's the evidence for social distancing what's the evidence for masking what what's the impact of temperature and humidity what does case fatality rate mean what's infection fatality ratio the number the, the, the amount of terms that were being banded around for the first time mm. and, 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 and what was different with this time is normally when that happens it might be one article but the whole papers were full of it weren't they and there were just lots of misinterpretations I'd say people taking information and running with it and going oh we, you know we might be talking about the case fatality rate versus no what you're really interested in is some other measure and you're using data from China which doesn't match what we're seeing here and I think we just felt that actually we should produce and write and put out in information and evidence to just inform the debate and actually had a huge traction really early on. Because and there was just... Does it also amalgamate um, other people's studies? Is it all your own work on that page? No, no, no. So we, our job is, so one of the keys within systematic reviews is they could take six months to a year. Mm. Or if I said use clinical study rem mm. reports, you're talking four years. But actually we have skills of rapid review where what we do is restrict some bits of the methods so we can speed up the process. And the bits we restrict don't add in too much bias. And if we do that, we can produce reviews in about five to seven days. And so that's our rapid review methodology. I mm. and, and I think over time, people are looking to automate that process. But I think the next 10, 20 years, we'll see more of an appetite for this is the evidence, how do we summarise it and then provide you with the latest updates? Mm. And so we used all of our skills to produce rapid reviews. And uh, the people I work with are probably some of the best in the world at doing this. And I think it, it, it's probably, in Oxford, we actually do have this long tradition of epidemiology, going right back to Richard Dole's age, to Centre for EBM, Cochrane, and evolving methods for how do you apply healthcare information and evidence to decisions. And, and, and that's where we are now. We're still working on how do you get this optimised way of getting evidence mm, to yeah. inform decisions. And it's difficult because there's lots of evidence out there that can be contradicting or harmful. And there were papers that were being retracted. There were all sorts of drugs being banded around. You should use these drugs. And you're going, whoa, we don't, we don't do it at this speed and pace. Mm. We're going back to the days of opinion, overriding the evidence. 
And I think that was hugely challenging early on. I mean, in terms of the uh, the kinds of restrictions that you know, lockdown and and mask and all that kind of thing. Um, I mean, do you think it, it was would be fair to say that that things had to be decided so fast that there simply wasn't time to reach the standard of evidence that you would that would have been desirable? Yeah, you know, if you'd have spoke to me twenty years ago as a clinician, I'd say when I went into a moment of a healthcare crisis and decision, I'd say you've got to make decisions really quick and efficiently and fast. And the, as a wiser physician, I go into many situations now where it looks really quite ominous for the individual. And now I tend to take a step back and just slow down my thinking and my analysis. And all the trainees want to act really quickly and say, oh my God, the person's going to die. Go, well, we've got more time than you think. I think, I think, you always have a bit more time than you think, apart from a few odd situations. And I think um, in those situations, I think it's, it's obvious to everybody, isn't it? I mean, you know, there are times when someone is bleeding to death, you've got to act really quick. Mm -hmm. But actually in many situations, you've got much more time than you think. Mm -hmm. If somebody's had a cardiac arrest, minutes matter. You know? But in this, I mean, in this instance, when, so in, in March, Transmission seemed to be pretty fast. Yeah, so I think, look, I think, I think here's where we're going to get the division of people's room. I think there was a problem with preparedness. Oh, clearly. <laughs> I don't think anyone and, would disagree yeah. with that. And so that problem of preparedness, lack of preparedness, meant that it almost made the decision inevitable. Yeah. So you could say, in a perfect world, if the NHS had been totally prepared, had got all the PPE, um, um, had... You might have waited. Uh, had, had got a plan, um, then you could have acted differently, but given that they didn't. Yeah, so I think that's the issue. So first time round, you would go, but you know, actually what happened is certain countries like Sweden decided to take a different tact. Now, obviously there was a big domino effect of countries taking this viewpoint. So I think it was incredibly hard for anybody to go, go against that in the first lockdown, but Sweden did. And it's interesting, you see, if you look at the first lockdown, it, when you start to analyze the data, is people had already modified their behavior quite considerably. You can, there's, you can go on Google and they can tell you about the activity on transport, people in the workplace, and actually it dropped off a stone already. And in fact, if you look at the data, the deaths peaked on about April the 8th. And if you track back, is the infections peaked about a week before we went into lockdown. And, and I think people have learned that over time is to watch the bell-shaped curve. There's a chap called William Farr that you can go back in history and look up Farr's law that says, you know, basically infections roughly rise and fall in a symmetrical pattern. And so you get this bell-shaped curve and that's exactly what we continue to see now. We're actually on just about on the cusp of the bell shape right now. And what happens when you get to the top of the bell shape, everybody starts to panic. But I think the fact that the biggest one for me was not even having a stockpile of PPE. You just can't go, you can't carry on because you're not aware of at that moment in time what's the predominant mode of transmission and how is this going to affect it. And the, that was number one major problem for me that I just went, well, if you haven't got that in place, you have to actually say pr press pause on the button. So I think that's why. And I think, and I think why that happens is, is I think, you know, is influenza has been on the government risk register for the last two decades. It's, the, it's up there with climate change. You might even say it's above climate change, given the 
potential catastrophe it can cause. But somehow, what happens is probably in about 10 years' time, as we filter along, everything starts to put, get pushed in the ether and disappears, and it doesn't quite become a predominant issue. And so we, this is a major issue about institutional knowledge and losing mm. these sort of perspectives. And somebody says, well, why are we spending 250 million on something we never use? And you go, yeah, because one day we might need it out mm. of the shelves. And I think, and, and then second with that is simple things like, this is just economically, I can't understand, why some of this stuff is not onshored. So we were having to buy it from around the world. So the price was going through the roof. We spent huge amounts of money and now we're paying the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. That actually people didn't realise that actually you need a facility to be able to, if you're not going to stockpile it, you have to have a facility that can go up and down very quickly. And I still don't think that message has got through. I call that health security. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to maintain levels of sustainable PPE in a pandemic like this. You can't buy it in at the cost we pay. And you could see the sort of widespread panic that the restrictions, in fact I was talking about it yesterday, shelves bare of toilet roll, pasta disappearing, all of these flour disappearing, and I'm like, there must be a big stockpile of this somewhere in people's houses. But that, there was a real um, sort of panic and anxiety across wider society. That probably lasted for a couple of months, but some people still, is still there today. So I, I think, I think the interesting issue is, where are we now in our thinking of restrictions and lockdowns? And I think it's interesting where we are, and I think people will look back for many decades to analyse was it a good or bad thing. But what you've got is a natural control experiment in Sweden where they didn't restrict. What they relied but on. They did have. So they, they did ha have deaths. I don't have the figures on my. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, so they did. Yes, but what they didn't do is have, so what happened is with the modelling is it predicted there'd be half a million deaths in an unmitigated scenario. Here? Yeah, in the Inga, yeah. yeah. And basically it said you have to go for suppression and you'll get that down to 20,000 people. Well that was wrong as well. Because what the models don't account for is people's individual behaviour change. And what the difference is in Sweden is people modified their behaviour according to the risk. I actually think people are really good at modifying their behaviour. The question is, do you need the government to regulate it or can individuals be informed and then say, actually, if you look at the size of an outbreak, it's about eight weeks where you get excess deaths. And that happened March, April, and it happened in January, February 2021. Mm. So it did happen again. I mean, it yeah, yeah, but it was only about six or eight weeks. Now, the key is, is, is this is the key discussion going forward is, what happened in 2020 was the belief that actually the model was the Chinese model. That actually you could follow a model of suppression. That you could basically take a virus and get it down to below about a thousand to keep it there with things like effective testing traits. And for many of the people who are epidemiologists, virus experts will just go, we don't quite understand that. There's a reason you call it go going viral incredibly difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. Now you can do it in the short term, but over the long term, what's the mechanism and what do you push and what are the consequences of all the strategies? There's no, but I think what, and this is an important aspect within the concept of EBM and where I started this discussion, everybody's looking for the silver bullet. 
there's a simple way to manage this and there's a simple way to prevent this and there's simple treatments and actually everything is much more complex than yeah. you think and much more uncertain about what's going to happen next. So let's talk, let's talk mm. about transmission because that's yeah. one of the complexities. Mm. So that, yeah. as you say, there was a lot of uncertainty about mm. how the virus was transmitted early on. So what, what studies did you do? So again, again, a, a, a transmission incredibly interesting issue and I think what's, what's interesting if you go in the history of the UK had a lot of really high quality research until about the 90s in terms of respiratory pathogens. We used to have an MLC common cold unit in the UK. Oh yes, they used to give gifts yeah. the common yeah, cold yeah. to young men. Yeah, 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 yeah. we called human, yeah, human challenge <laughs> studies to yeah. young army people and mm. see what happened next. And then actually probably what ended much of that was the sort of AIDS, HIV, because a lot of the focus shifted. And that's what happens in research. Priorities shift and the money shifts. And then the predominant strategy was vaccination because the predominant mode was influenza. But the first thing to say is to say, how many respiratory pathogens are out there? Well, when I'm a GP, there's about 40 I know of that I could say these affect individuals who come through the door. But about 40% of what people have got, we've no idea what they are. And it could be hundreds more that have not been discovered yet. So I think the first is to say there's a lot of different respiratory pathogens at any one time. They're all interacting all the time, and that is really interesting. So, so this idea of influenza morphed into there's only one virus that really matters but actually there are still all these other ones out there and now we know there are like coronavirus mm. and we knew about we knew there were corona but there are other yeah coronaviruses, yeah really. yeah so the, you know there are four common co ones that have been circulating then you've got the ones like SARS-1 and MERS so you've got them in, in in the background but we've had four common ones that basically affect children affect adults and Everybody who's basically probably over the age about two or three had probably had a circulating common coronavirus already. But actually transmission is about ultimately understanding transmission then it helps you inform how you might intervene because that's ultimately you want to know how these transmitted. So for instance, you, you know, back to the common cold. So for instance, in something like rhinovirus there, they did things like put it on people's hands and actually get them to shake hands with each other and then see if the other person and then split them into barracks and said, did they get infected? And they showed it was direct contact. Now we can't do them, we've sort of lost that human challenge study, although they have done the human challenge studies within the vaccine development. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, actually, although it sounds unethical, human challenges studies are at the top of pyramid to understand yeah. transmission. Oh, they do it with malaria, isn't yeah. yeah. However, we got asked by the World Health Organization, it was about September of 2020, and said they'd done a, a, a sort of review and said, this is where we are, but there was so much evidence emerging in a way that had never emerged before for a respiratory pathogen. There was about 2,000 studies a week being published on coronavirus. It was incredibly hard to keep up to date with what was going on. And emerging and what was happening, everything was getting picked up that said, oh, it's it's airborne, it's fomite, it's this, it's in the sewage, it's everywhere, you know, and it's like, how do you make sense of that? So we started to do systematic reviews on the modes of transmission. And uh, we're still in the midst of doing that. And, and I still think we will get to some certainty, mm. but uh, orofecal, close contact, vertical transmission, 
mother to, to, to the fetus. Uh, airborne, as I've said, fomite. We've looked at asymptomatic transmission. We've looked at transmission in immunosuppressed people. And we've just done our latest update. We've looked at, included 591 studies across them mm. reviews. So it's been a huge I did, I did look at some of your papers and you did, yeah. you did make the observation at the beginning of a couple of them that in general the quality of the studies was poor. Very poor. So if you put a lot of poor studies together, yeah, yeah. how do you get a good answer? You don't. You don't. You don't. Yeah. You don't. And I think early on there was a, a rush, it was like a gold rush for to produce evidence on on COVID. And, and so for instance, one of the simple things we said, so for instance, if you're going to do a study that claims airborne transmission, then you should do some airborne sampling. And there are studies that say, we didn't do any sampling, but it's transmitted through the air. And you're like, well, okay. So we've got to create some quality measures. What defines a good quality study? And it's that, yes, sorry, I've read that. Yeah. <laughs> those papers as well. I mean, there are those who argue that sampling a virus from the air is an incredibly difficult thing to do in any kind of reliable way. And there are other kinds of evidence. Yeah. I guess more circumstantial kinds of evidence. Yeah, that yeah. Make airborne transmission look likely. Yeah, so so you know actually, but there are twenty seven studies now that have tried to do it. So actually, early on we said there's only four or five, but actually what we found in at the back end of of this is actually people are starting to do better, higher quality studies because you're getting the more serious scientists thinking about this. But you're right. It 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 reminds me of a lot of the problems that, that occurred early on in EBM in randomised trials. They said there's no way, no reporting standards. Mm. So people like Doug Altman, who's a famous statistician in Oxford, started movements like Consul and Equator and said, we're going to bring reporting standards. How do you report this stuff? Because you can't pull it together if it's not reported in a mm. similar way. Because mm. people would just miss out outcomes because they didn't like the answer. Mm. So you're right, there's been a huge problem. But we've been working to create standards for how to determine uh, transmission. And we've just published it an update and it's under peer review now we've presented it at viral co conferences we've got a network around the world of people who look at this and it's clear to us if you want to make a transmission claim there are a couple of things yet you do have to do you do have to have viral culture and that means you can say for instance if i shake your hand and then we go into your hand and then swab your hand we're going to take that and put it into what's called vero e6 cells and try and grow that and see if we can get an actual virus. We can also then do genomic sequencing to make sure it's the same sequence. And then you go, yeah, actually, we've established transmission. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the best way to do it. Now, there are surrogates. Incredibly laborious and time consuming. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, but that's like saying recovery trial of mm -hmm. 20,000 people. Why didn't you just do a trial of 10 people and say, well, dectamethasone works? Mm. Can you imagine what... No, no, I mean, that's, you know, sorry, that's, I yeah. don't think that's, all you're doing yeah. is giving them some medicine and finding out what the answer is. It's, it's all this, you know, the individual swabbing, the collecting of the data. Yeah, but so this is incredibly important. If you want to make a definitive statement, X is transmitted through Y, with certainty, you need to have high quality evidence to be able to make that statement. You only need to do it about twice need to do it once and then replicate it mm. and say, look, this is what it looks like. And I think this is, goes to the core of the difference in an evidence-based approach. Anybody down here can say, I've got a bit of information, here's how I interpret it. And, you know, and, and that's okay. But what's happened is that becomes statement of facts because of the way it's treated in the media. 
Our job is to say, if you're going to say something is, is this way, then actually here's the type of evidence that informs that decision. And I think this is crucial to the whole debate because that's science. And science requires on building something that is a hypothesis mm. that you test it. And only, only when you can't, you, you, you can't refute that null hypothesis do you say this is transmitted in this way. So, how, sorry, how do, it, looking at all the studies you've looked yeah. at so far, what do you think the likeliest form of transmission is? Yeah, I still think we're in a situation where it's a combination of contact, droplet, close contact. But, al but it also means we can't refute anything because of the quality. And in certain situations, like in this room, if we shut the windows and the doors, there's more likely in a closed environment it'll permeate a bit further. But actually, but that, so that's airborne. Well, that would be, but that would be in a specific promoter environment. So I think again, the term airborne is not helpful because I think the term airborne is is collates with it's everywhere. So airborne means it's up in the in the in the atmosphere, doesn't it? It's everywhere. When you're outside, it's everywhere. So I think the terms are not helpful. Mm. And I think w people should be, if they're scientists, very careful about making generic statements about it's airborne. Because I think what we need to do is be very clear in this situation, in this circumstance, this is how it might be transmitted. But what it, yes, so what, what you've got to, in terms of having a policy, what you need to know is how far apart people need to be not to catch it. Yeah, but let's say, but for instance, ultimately, even irrespective of how it's transmitted, that should inform the interventions you would do, and then you should formally test those interventions. And you should test them with randomised controlled trials. But for somehow, we get that for drugs and vaccines, but we don't get it for non-pharmaceutical interventions. There's been only two randomised controlled trials of masks that have been published so far. I'm aware of a third one that's testing uh, FFP masks versus uh, surgical masks in a clinical population in Canada, and that's will report sometime soon. What that for me is a failure of this of this pandemic. There are lots of questions we could have tried to answer with that situation. And people go, well, well why, why well this, what equipoise means you're uncertain about what whether it works or not. If you don't have equipoise you don't need a randomized trial. Mm. You're very clear. Now here's a key learning point. When you find people who disagree about what to do next, it's generally a failure of the evidence base. There isn't high quality to inform what's going to happen next. Therefore, we can have an opinion either side of that argument, make it political and keep disagreeing, and we will keep disagreeing. Generally, the answer for me in that situation is, as a clinician, is to, is to reduce the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an interesting point in evidence-based practice. I suspect within two to three decades, will have done what we've done for drugs and vaccines with non-pharmaceutical interventions, we'll get it. We have to test these things. We just can't go on spending billions of pounds for interventions where there's uncertainty. And I think, and I think that will be an interesting area for history to look back on and go, look at all the failings we've made when we thought we understood what was the right thing to do. And is, I mean, if I were to say precautionary principle, would that make you go off? Or <laughs> um, well, I think it's interesting. What does a precautionary principle mean is, again, it's been one of those things people have taken away and run with. 
What the precautionary principle generally refers to is there's a known exposure in the environment that may be harmful. And the precautionary principle says remove that from the environment until you can prove it's safe. So there may be some toxin or some fertilizer. Yeah. It doesn't mean you go and intervene in some way. There are very few areas where we actually mandate an intervention. And that's worth thinking through. There are some, like seat belts. Generally, they, they're about removing things. Smoking from the environment, smoking in workplaces. But all of them have a very good exposure for harm. Very rarely do we intervene. And the only good example I can think of is seat belts. And crash helmets. And crash helmets in, in motorbikes. So we make people do certain things. But to be honest with you, the precaution principle will say you never get on a motorbike in the first place because it's so harmful. It's like way up there in terms of the harmful events. But we let people take them risks, don't we? But actually, when we decide to do that, there has to be very clear evidence of harm. And with seatbelts, it was, took actually quite some time to build up the evidence base to actually say, actually, we're going to make this mandatory. And, and, and it's interesting, before that, we had all this advertising marketing campaigns, didn't we, about clunk like every old trip and all that. The people who are older in the room will remember that. And I think when you decide to intervene, you have to, very, it's not precautionary principle, you have very clear evidence of harm that will be negated. And a seatbelt is actually an all or nothing event, isn't it? You do not get ejected from the car with a seatbelt. And also, the harms are virtually zero. So I think precautionary principle has been used in a sort of way that doesn't make sense to me. And again, this is the, the, there are two things that are radically different about this pandemic. One is the use of PCR, which we've done work in that area as well, and social media. And I think the social media 24-hour news bubble has created a sort of these ways of coalescing of they were doing it because of the precautionary principle. And then what we've lacked is critical thinking in that moment. Oh, yeah, that's why we're doing it. And then we suddenly sort of say, well, when do we intervene? And, and we say, yeah, safety helmets, safety belts. But actually, it's about generally removing known exposure to precautionary principle, which makes sense, doesn't it? You know, you might say, I've got a certain type of drink. It might have one of these carcinogens. Well, you've got to remove it because actually, until you can prove it's safe, we're not having it in society. So precaution principle is about removal and not exposing people to known harms not about intervening when you've got uncertainty. So you just talk, you just threw in PCR there. Yeah. So what, what Well, again, you see, um, yeah, so going back to, uh, you see, in the 2009, it was very interesting. In the 2009 pandemic, there was a bit of PCR testing, but not a lot. And also many of the trials were starting to use PCR testing, but some were using antibody testing. And then suddenly overnight... So let's just clarify that. So PCR testing tells you that there's virus there and antibody testing tells you there has been a virus there. Yeah, correct, correct. So generally, if you have an antibody rise, you say if you had a fourfold antibody rise, you'd say you'd have the infection. And that was generally the way of establishing the group that had had the infection. So you do a trial and say how many people had had a fourfold antibody rise. But then what came along was PCR testing. 
and that used to be a slow so it, it wasn't helpful but then they had this real-time PCR that suddenly could produce results in hours and then subsequent to that we've had lateral flow testing which was in minutes but we'll come up to the real-time PCR and, and what was interesting about this is one of the things we do a lot of and I do a lot of and in my career is when I have knowledge deficits I start to teach myself about some of these issues and then I realize it's not just me with the knowledge deficit there are a huge amount of people out there who really don't haven't thought this through and actually we was interested again in the relationship of PCR testing what does it mean when you take a virus that may be 30,000 base pairs long and you take it down to a little fragment of about 20 base pairs and you test for that and you then say you're positive yes no now most clinical tests work in a way of saying yes no but actually underpinning that is a threshold so like take your blood pressure you get to a certain point and above that you're hypertensive and below that you're not CRP an inflammatory marker above a certain level it's abnormal below that it's normal but with this test it was yes no so that's the first thing that interested us but actually there's an amplification cycle called the cycle threshold so what you can take is one little bit of one little bit of base pair and you can have that in a sample and you start amplifying it and the less that's in the original sample the harder the test has to work and so it has to do more cycles because it's doubling and so basically you can go up to this cycle threshold of about 45 which will pick up about one copy per mil on an individual that is beyond the needle in the haystack but in some people it will get to about 20 and they'll say well you've got a billion copies per mil well that's, that's a huge difference but we're treating them exactly the same and we had this service where we were just trying to look at this evidence and we noticed there were a number of studies coming out on the relationship of PCR testing to viral culture and actually these studies had no problem doing the viral culture it's really interesting but actually they started to build this relationship that actually the more virus you had on the less on board the more likely you were to be infectious and the less virus you have on the less likely to be infectious and that still is something policy-wise we, we're interested in and it's becoming clearer because I'm aware clinicians now use the test in this way. A cycle threshold below 30 means the probability of being infectious is much higher. A cycle threshold above 30, probability of being infectious is virtually zero apart from a couple of situations if you're immunosuppressed or in the very short window when you're about to start being infected. But actually, and, and is that test... Um, costly or, or laborious to do? That no, because what you want to do is establish the principles and then you can use PCR, which we consider is a high-quality test. But actually, most tests rely... So PCR, I thought you said PCR wouldn't give you the answer. Yeah, yeah, but it does, because what I'm saying to you is if you've got the... If you establish thresholds... So what I'm saying is if you have a yes-no, mm. it can't tell you who's yeah. infectious or not. But if you put a threshold in, like a cycle threshold of 30, mm. you've got a much better chance of being infectious. Yeah, I understand that, but in order to, so the test to, for the cycle threshold is not the same as the, the PCR test just gives you the yes, no. Well, it depends, you see. Some do and some don't. This is where we keep asking questions. So some give a qualitative answer where they'll just get to the end and they'll say a limited detection is 45 and you're positive. But many of the tests do give you a cycle threshold and can provide that quantitative result. 
and some countries in the world like Belgium are now standardising their reference laboratories and starting to provide that clinic, that cycle threshold. And what this is, is the movement from analytical accuracy, what happens in the lab, to developing clinical accuracy. Basic EBM, how do you actually use this test in clinical practice? So we've rolled it out at speed, now we have to think smarter about what does it mean. Now, our evidence suggests, when we've looked at it and we've asked for the information, we've got the evidence in, in the countries around the UK, that about 40% of people, when they test positive yes, no, when they're a yes, are not infectious. And there are two reasons that. You actually might have got the test and you've cleared it. And the RNA fragments can keep being cleared for up to six to eight weeks. In fact, we've got somebody at about 180 days. Remember the Florence Free? Those lads in, in stuck in Florence for about seven, eight weeks couldn't merge because they were only going to be let free if they tested negative. And every week they kept testing and saying, we're positive, we're positive, but we're completely well. That's contamination. They've cleared the virus, but they're still testing positive. This is basic EBM that actually has to be brought to the fore, but has been missed out. And if you do that, it helps you think smarter about, so when you say there are 10,000 people in hospital, what you really want to know is how many of them are actually infectious and how many are not infectious. And that can help you make a better decision, not worry as much, because if that number goes to 20,000, people start to panic and then instigate policies. So these are just create accurate information. The whole of EBM relies on accurate information. You cannot make a good decision without accurate information. And I think over time, over the 30 years I've been involved in it, the idea that people have opinions about what's the right thing to do and produce poor quality data has pervaded poor quality decision making. And so we've done the systematic review, we've updated it four times, it's been published in clinical infectious diseases, it's been highly cited, highly accessed and started to have an impact on decision-making and how people are going to think going forward. And so I think we'll see changes over time. The thing with evidence-based practice is we get there in the end. It just takes a long time. Yes, yes, that's the, that's the point. It takes a long time, but the, the <laughs> political decision-making has, or the policy decision-making It took to about 14 to years to get from smoking is bad for you exactly. to changing yeah. the policy, yeah. and that's the biggest harm I've ever seen. Mm. We'll get there in the end, our job is to just keep putting out the information. Now, that can be controversial when you're in the midst of, well... well that's, I, was going, yeah. I was going to get to that, and you talked yeah, about yeah, political yeah. views earlier. Yeah. Um, I mean, a, a, a lot of the statements that you've made have been picked up yeah. by ostensibly political groups who mm. simply object to the, um, uh, well, the, you could call them libertarian groups who object to government control of any, of any kind. Um, I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Well, I guess, I guess the first thing is to say um, my views have been right at the heart of government because in September 2020, I was right at the Cabinet Office helping them inform the decisions and the debate. I continue to work widely with policy people on political levels and inform the debate. Uh, interestingly, evidence-based medicine has always been controversial. And, and, I, and one of the things I'm very careful to do is to not tell people what to do, is to inform the debate and say, this is generally how you would respond in this situation. We can all have opinions, we can all have political viewpoints. And I think there has been a sense that there's a sort of right and left or a right and wrong. And I think we live in that world at the moment, and I think that's what the social media divide is creating. 
come out of Brexit, come out of Trump, come out of this, and it's very polarised. There's a lockdown or an anti-lockdown group. And, and um, there's been a, a group of people in Oxford, that includes myself and people like Sinetra Gupta, who, 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 who's an incredibly smart person, probably theoretical epidemiologist, knows more about... Yeah, I talked to her a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, viruses and, and incredibly interesting. And, and I talk to her more or less every week throughout the pandemic because I'm just interested in the knowledge and understanding what's going on. There are things we did that I didn't understand. And I think it's my job is to point out when there's uncertainties and point out and go, well, look, if we're going to do that, here's what, what's the answer. So, for instance, zero COVID is a very good, what's the end game? What do you consider is this is not like a bath where you just turn up the tap and actually everything will just miraculously disappear. Actually, what the problem is, is you may be storing up huge problems for the future. And hey, presto, what's happening? You push it into winter. You push more and more problems. And so we're still going to have the fallout for years to come. We still haven't sorted the care home issue out. So all of these strategies don't sort out care homes. They don't sort out hospital-acquired infections. There's huge problems like right now with excess deaths in the home that are not COVID, that we're not talking about. So I think, I think it, but it's been interesting, the groups of people, where they are, and I, I think there's been, over time, a shift, if that's fair to say, in the dynamic of people's thinking. A lot of people have been scared, and I think most people have been on a journey to think differently, because I think early on, and I was, a lot of the media were very much like, oh, by November 2020, we'll be back to normal. And I would sit with people like Sinetra Gupta and we'd have a meeting with them and say, there's just no chance of that. It's just it's not going to happen. You need to prepare for the winter. What's the plan for care homes, for instance? What's the plan for hospital-acquired infections? What, what are you going to do with schools? You know, and I had simple policies to them. I said, well, you know, actually school holidays provide a natural social distance event. You could try in areas, not do it, just pilot, what happens if you increase the Christmas holiday period? How does that buy you more time? What does it do? But you would pilot these things and try them out so we'd learn. But, but actually, we, we had very clear views of zero COVID. Then we're going to have certain interventions that we're going to change the nature of it. So we're going to have MPIs, rules of six, all of these things, square boxes in schools where the kids would stay in social bubbles and all this. And I just looked at them and thought, you know, none of these have an evidence base. And actually, many of the people out there would look at it and go, they don't even feel like common sense to me. The idea that after 10 o'clock viruses leave the pub or something mm -hmm. just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so um, I would put forward questions. A lot of the media come for me. About 80% of the work I do with the media never gets out there or gets published. I just help them think through the stories or what they may think or write. And so... Over time, I've created a relationship with the media and with policy that I hope people come to me because they go, well, he's going to present a sort of fair opinion about where we are. I do not believe that any clinician's job is to overstate or overemphasize when they think, well, actually, we'll just present a worst case scenario. I still don't quite understand how that helps anybody. And I mean, one of the statements that you've made that you and Sinetra have made and, and the Barrington yeah. Declaration yeah. was part of this is about the harms yeah. of the non-pharmaceutical in interventions. Yeah, do, do those harms have an evidence base? 
I think that evidence base is continuing to emerge, isn't it? And it will continue. So, for instance, when you start to say, for instance, now you're starting to see you restrict and close schools and keep children off schools, and then you're starting to see the burden of mental health, anxiety, but then you start to see things like language development. And particularly, I think we'll find certain age groups are more affected than others. And that's a huge problem. I think we've still seen many of the collateral damage and I think we're seeing accumulating in terms of comorbidities and increasing alcohol, obesity, poor management of, of diseases like hypertension is coming through the system. I think we'll be living with some of these issues for five to ten years until we start to really get a grip of the whole problem. But I think it, when you decide to intervene at a position of equipoise, there are potential benefits and potential harms. There are no interventions that I know of where they're just all benefit. Now, yeah, someone's going to say there probably are, but generally they are, you know, maybe the seatbelts is one. You know, actually, even if you have a seatbelt, you might have a low impact and do yourself some harm at low impact. But actually, you have to remember there's always going to be harms. And the key is understanding the net benefit to harm ratio of any yeah. intervention. And then how do you weigh up? Well, you um, see, what people a, were an doing... A 85-year-old's death against a child's okay. health difficulties. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Normally what you do is you ask people what they would like to do. I have an auntie who's 85, and I know what she wants to do. She would just say, I want to meet my grandchildren. And normally that's what you do. And she says, I'm prepared to take the risk because I've only got a couple of years. I can't put it off till... 2024 so it's an individual risk why do we take that risk or benefit away from they're basically saying at 85 it's more benefit to me to see my grandchildren and the quality of life that provides than to forgo that so that i might live another six months so it's about informing and each as i said each individual can come to different decisions about what they want to do and that's okay but when you decide to mandate on everybody that's a problem but that was, uh, the decision to mandate was because of, as you, you said yourself, because of looking at what happened in Italy and the, uh, the yeah. hospitals being overwhelmed. But I'll give so you a good... So that, I think that... Well, I think... It, I'm, I'm completely with you on what you're weighing yeah. up there, but the, the, the worry of the hospitals being unable to cope, probably because they were under-resourced and not Yeah, prepared, so that's fine. So that's fine. But I think what happens now is every time you get to near peak infection rate, that re-emerges. So we could argue, and I could argue, and we wrote about this, is that England has 100,000 uh, adult care beds. It's, it's one of the lowest numbers yeah, in yeah. Europe. Mm. And, and Germany has somewhere like three to four times as many beds. So they don't have this problem. Also, what we have is you could argue that what you need in winter, and this has been a persistent problem for the 20 years I've been in healthcare, I wrote about this before, is the winter crisis. When I came in 2000, it was... It was unbelievable how bad it was. But generally what you need is for, to deal with respiratory pathogens is about a 20% flex in your bed care numbers. And so, for instance, if you look at the, the number of admissions for respiratory diseases pre-COVID, they doubled between August and December. And actually, generally, we normally have about 5,000 excess deaths in January compared to August. And so... Going in, we've always had this problem of people have gone in to see grandma with a respiratory infection and in January the deaths go up. And that is one of the consequences of the way that the winter seasonal effect works. So we've got a problem. 
But the problem, the, the answer is not to lock down. The answer is to say, how do you ensure you've got extra capacity? Well, everybody who goes in a supermarket will know at Christmas they can deal with the extra capacity. They hire some seasonal workers, they put on more checkouts, they bring in more stock and they prepare for it. But we go, no, 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 we're not going to prepare for this natural variation in demand. We're just going to pretend it's not there and if it occurs, we'll lock down. Now, it's interesting, wherever you've been in the world and somebody could do this piece of work, they could look at the media headlines where they've all gone, we're going to be, we're going to, we're going to, go beyond capacity, our hospitals are going to be completely overwhelmed. And what happens is you come back four weeks later and you go, it didn't happen. And that's because of the Farmer's Law, you're right at the peak of infections and just as soon as you get there, they just drop off as quick as they've come in. And, and, and the explanations for that are just really interesting, but I, I just think you've got to trust these laws that exist. But what happens is on the way up, everybody panics. And that's where they give rise to these exponential curves. It's like, I'd say it's a bit like you're on the motorway. And when you're on the motorway, you've come on the slip road and you start speeding up, don't you? And what we watch is the data. So you start off 20, 40, you're doubling. But as you get to near the speed limit, your acceleration slows down, doesn't it? And you can watch that acceleration. So you go 64, 65, 66. And once that starts happening, you know you come into the peak and you're going to get to 70. And then you're going to slow down in a similar way to come off the motorway. So if you watch the data really carefully, you can see when it's slowing down. And I've watched that multiple times, and that's exactly the point when everybody starts panicking. What the mathematical models try to say to you is, actually, there's no speed limit and you've got no brakes. And therefore, this car is so dangerous, you need to do something like pull the handbrake. But actually, there is a speed limit and you can watch the data very carefully. And that's what we do, and we did it day to day to watch not what we think it's gonna be in a month, just ask a question, what does the acceleration look like? And that's, you think that's a combination of immunity and behavior change? It's a combination of all sorts of, there are some things I think, yeah, like now, you look at it and you go, well look, the immunity, natural immunity that kicks in is, I mean the ONS now predict there's been over 50 million people have been infected in England this year. So at some point, your natural immunity kicks in. It doesn't protect you forever. And, no. we, and with Omicron, it seems to be even less. Yeah, but again, <laughs> but again, you see, this is the bit where everybody's going, we've got genomic sequencing, we've got variants, and we've got this new scary thing called variants. But if you go back to the MRC common cold unit, they did these experiments in human challenge studies 25, 30 years ago, and showed exactly this with coronaviruses and rhinoviruses. About 50% of the people got reinfected at one year. And that's because, yeah, there's a natural variation in these viruses, but there's also a natural waning in your immune system. And so one of the arguments you've got is the idea that what we really do in society is keep topping up our immunity, that actually these viruses are all in competition all the time. And that interaction means that we go about our daily lives. But actually, if you give yourself a big break, that actually that's harmful and deleterious to you. And you can think of that because many viruses are bad for you if you don't get them in childhood and you get them in adulthood. For the first time, you get these cytokine storms. Really bad news for you. So actually what we do in childhood, and I say this as a GP, is you start from ground zero. And I go, well, in a lifetime, you're going to get about 200 viruses. About 30 of them, we know what some, some we don't know. In a bad year, a child might have five to seven. 
And you as a parent are going to have a bad time too because you want to get more viruses while you're a parent. And by the way, when you're a grandparent, you start to run in trouble again. But actually, it's really interesting. You can look at some, and I think we should study these, there are some natural groups who have probably topped up immunity all the time. Primary school teachers, my sister's one. She continually gets colds, but she never gets seriously unwell. And she can have six to seven a year. I am a bit unwell this weekend. And, you know, and, and that natural... So one of the arguments was, if you're interfering with this, you're starting to create immune gaps. And now the worries are, what about the RSV and the influenza coming back? We've got this increasing susceptible population that actually will create us more harm. Now, at this moment in time, people are watching Australia, looking, oh, they've got influenza and COVID, oh, it's creating more problems. That's the worry now going into winter. And I think these are interesting issues to look at, to say, can you intervene in that? Generally, the sort of laws of nature would say, well, if we've grown up in this way, in this symbiotic relationship, there must be benefits for us, and there must be some potential harms, I agree. The interesting issue for me is, I think, is what makes you fit for that viral challenge? We've got an older population, we've got more multimorbidity than we've ever seen, and more obesity. So actually we've got, we stored up problems. That's where we are in the world. And we haven't even thought about, well, what does it mean to have an aging population? Because in the 70s, you wouldn't have had that 75% of deaths in over 75 because they didn't exist in the same way. So you might have had this outbreak and then just gone, oh, there's been a funny virus circulating. So nobody's even thought about the challenges of having that increasing aging population. And if it continues to grow, these viruses will continue to present as more challenges. But does that mean you should lock down every time that occurs? Um, I think there's a growing realisation that now the collateral effects, the economic consequences, mean it's a sort of off the table. But I'm not sure it's off the table forever, because I think some people have an appetite for restrictions. Uh, and some people are still in a mode where they think it's the right thing to do. I, I, we will continue to question that. Right. So I've just got some more questions about... Well, actually, no, there is... A, yeah, there is a question. Well, you say some people. So I know there are people even within this department mm. who disagree with you. How difficult has that been for you to deal uh, with? Look, I, science is, is built on testing hypotheses and... And, and, and I actually, I, I, there are two distinct things. I welcome people who provide criticism because it makes you think harder, work harder, and try and keep testing your hypothesis. It, it won't ultimately be me that says, here's what, how this is transmitted, or here's how to use the test. It will be the evidence and the quality of the evidence. And that will inform the decision-making. What's been difficult throughout this pandemic, though, is I think with the social media work and the frenzy and the fear and the anxiety, it's whipped people up to making things personal. And, and that's not to say in this department, but just out there, this is an issue that's, that is now a problem in the world. If I don't like the message, I'm going after the messenger. And I am not brought up in that way. I'm brought up in a family where, you know, it's, it's the most important thing is you've got something to say, say it. But never make it personal. Make it about the issue. Make it about what it means, the evidence, and how you're going to test it, and how you go about it. But I think we live in very 
dangerous times because I think social media has created a frenzy and a way of trying to say, well, what we need to do is paint you into a certain corner and then that will get rid of you and your viewpoint. But I think I'm okay with it. I mean, uh, I mean, you've not. I mean, you've still got funding for your research. You haven't. You've not been ostracised. Uh, I suspect there are people who don't want to work with me, or people in certain places who would not, not, want to support my work. But that's okay. That's more about them than me. Um, I, I personally, the work we do, uh, I built my skill base. I can do the work. It slows me down on my own. You know. I don't need a team of 30 people, but I've got some really amazing collaborators and generally we've worked for decades together. And these people are so good at what they do and we've been thinking about these issues for a long time and we'll be thinking for a long time going forward. There's been a lot of people who've dipped in and will now dip out of this pandemic. They saw it as an opportunity to get involved. It's, got, it's the only show in town and, and they'll disappear. And we'll still be publishing the evidence. And actually, I think what's helpful now is it's sort of everything's calmed down a bit. People are less fearful, less anxious. But in the middle of it, it was a bit like any challenge to the public messaging is not, not, you know, not acceptable and you need to be silenced. And we've had that. I've had that. And to be honest with you, it, that was challenging in the middle of that, very challenging. But I think, I think is... I think we'll see a reinvigoration of the need to have academic freedom. We all don't have to agree. We do have to agree though, and the evidence is high quality and very clear about what to do next. And that's the most important thing about informing decisions. Not what I think, what does the evidence tell you about making this decision? This is an important issue for policy because what I think a lot of people think politicians want to hear and policymakers is, you tell them what to do. They don't. They, people in 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 those you know, are very opinionated. What they want to do is say, "Can I have a chat with you? Can you help me understand this?" I have former prime ministers, current prime ministers talking to me, asking those questions, and they and I, and I think that's carried on because I'm very clear about what we do and don't know. I won't step out of the marks and go. I'm going to give you some outlandish to run with. I just go, this is what we know. Here's how you think about PCR testing. Superb quality innovation. It does this and this, but actually we could improve how we did it if we understood how to use PCR to make decisions about is it infectious or not. And if we understood that better, we could move forward. You decide what we should do next. And I think that's, because I also think, and I think what's happening in this modern era is people are, are, are sort of, moving out of science into politics and uh, you know and in, in evidence-based medicine it's a really quite a clear rational approach to the thinking which it's not been unusual for us to be controversial and you i mean you've participated you've been a media commentator for before this before all this started yeah yeah I've, yeah yeah i have and um, people have come to us over time Probably the first thing we did was the metal hip scandal. Then we did a lot about in the Olympics about sports products and transvaginal mesh, areas where there were issues going on. And there have been some controversial areas I've been involved in. We did a review on the use of uh, transgender hormone drugs for children, which was you know, a very controversial area. And, and all we tried to say is, what does the evidence say mm. about what to do next? 
oh my gosh, that was so controversial. And generally we said, do you know in this normal situation, if we're going to use this treatment, we do it in a trial. So it should be research, not actually. And that was hugely controversial. And, and, and interestingly, over the time of the pandemic, I still have lots of relationships now with the media. In fact, this morning I was doing talk radio this morning, mm. TV, and did an interview this morning. Should we be worried is the question. You know, right now cases are going up, should mm. we be worried? Um, it's interesting, a lot of people say to me, well, I wouldn't do the media, maybe it gets, the message will get distorted or get twisted. I go, well, look, it, it, the message is going to get there out, whatever you do. The question is, do you want to be part of helping inform that and going forward? And I think over time, is if you, it's about building a relationship and trust. So a lot of them might just come to me and say, can I ask you a question? There's no, no benefit for me, but I think there's a benefit to wider society mm -hmm. if they put a report out or a publication that says, well, actually, here's what the death certificate data says, not, not what I think it might do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's... I found that quite rewarding, but it also means you've got to be on top of your game. You've got to understand what's going on. You've got to understand the information and the evidence at any one point. And so if somebody comes to you and says, are you worried about the data of rising infections? You have to go, okay, well, what would make people worried? Okay, well, hospital admissions, well, what about the intensive care admissions? If they were going up, that would be worrying. Deaths were going up, that would be worrying. So I'll look at all them bits of data and I'll go, well, actually, when I look at it, although cases are going up, actually the deaths have actually come down and intensive care numbers have not gone up. So actually I wouldn't be that worried, but actually I'm giving you the information that can help you make a better decision. And yeah, and I, and I think working with the media has been quite an interesting, it's challenging. You have to be thoughtful about what you say because words, single words can be taken out of context really quickly. But I think... There's a lot of benefits to working with the media. Mm -hmm. And presumably you want the public to be informed and that's, they're not going to read your papers. Well, ultimately, so we've, done, we've had projects even based in schools and we've tried to get this off the ground. It's not quite worked and actually COVID put a big uh, spanner in the works, if you like. But ultimately, I think these sorts of issues should be taught in schools. And it's increasingly a little bit, it's in the, but, but if you don't do biology or something, it's not in there. So mm -hmm. biology will talk about clinical trials regulation and what's a drug trial and so forth. But actually, ultimately, everybody faces healthcare decisions. They even might have consent. Even at the age of 13, 14, you've got to make decisions about all sorts of things. Girls about HPV vaccination. Very young, you might be thinking about all sorts of treatments. So I ultimately think we should be te teaching about risk prevention, consent, and informed decision in school so everybody's ready for the world where they'll face these decisions. Because what happens is one day you wake up and suddenly you might be 50 and somebody's saying, well, we're going to do your blood pressure. Can you come in? And you're like, well, what's that for? I'm a ill. I'm like, no. Now, for men, that's much... Women are probably with the, the fact that you are engaged much more with healthcare than men, but you get these very difficult questions. Oh, your cardiovascular risk is in the next 10 years, it's going to be 8% chance of having a cardiovascular event. And you think, well, what's that about? So we have all these features that are thrust upon us. And actually, they require you to be pretty skilled in terms of risk prediction, prevention, understanding effects, bias, all of these features. And I think what's happened in the COVID pandemic is they've been thrust on you mm -hmm. in a way that people have now said, hold on a minute, I didn't ask for this. 
what actually is informing need? And I've, the bit that's been for me is I've had huge support in the public. I can't, I can't quite say how positive it's been. Whether it's I get letters, get emails, on occasion people send me things. Uh, my window cleaner wants to talk to me every time he comes <laughs> round and says, can I have 15 minutes of your time? I want to talk about COVID, please. And I give him 15 minutes. You know, it's that. And the public has been amazing. And I think the public has an appetite for understanding interventions and what it means to them. So you talked about your hut. Mm. So what, my, my next bit of questioning is, is what was working through the pandemic restrictions like for you? I mean, how easy was it to carry on doing what you were doing? I think I'm pretty, so I think, yeah, so I've got this hut in my back garden, which has got two computer screens and I plug my laptop in on a daily basis. And I have to say, uh, I've never been as busy. I was probably working minimum 12 hours a day. You, and, 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 and that's because a combination of we were doing the reviews, the evidence service, but then I get media people saying, can we talk to you? Then we were writing articles. We had a splurge of articles in certain journals, which we knew, like wrote a whole series in The Spectator, which had a big policy impact because all the politicians read certain journals, so that had an that, impact. That's stopped now, has it? I, well, yeah. The no. last one I could find was in November. Yeah, so we write in spite at the moment. At the moment, we move around. I tend to move around, we'll come back to Spectator. And I think it just goes through cycles with the media. You know, it's not, it's not, and we, we, life and work gets in the way. It's, you know, it's hard work to do everything and publish a piece. And then, and so, you know, we were having to take a day a week out and we'd sort of work about Thursday evening, Friday morning, and then finish it on a Saturday. And that, that was like for about four months. And in the background, we was also doing, for about four months, there's a statistician here called Jason Oak, who is amazing. And for about four months, we were producing a daily update for the media on the deaths, on the day of reporting, and we put that out every day. So, so never been busier. And, um, and I think, I mean, combination-wise as well, is the urgent care setting and general practice is suffering from a lack of doctors as well. And so they're also calling out for people to come and work all the time and so you know in the middle of Christmas they're like we're in deep trouble and so there's lots of shifts that need recovery so never been as busy I think you know we've had this huge shift to online working which some of it's good some of it is not so good I think we're more efficient in sort of business meetings but we're lacking that sort of in the corridor brainstorming moment and I, and I think there will be some good stuff, but I think um, for, I haven't still even come up for breath in about two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult. Even I, I was away last week and I still was worked about 20 hours last week while well away. I still did a media request and did that and don't know why I do it, but I do. Because it, it's just, and I think there's still a lot to work through. And I, and I think what, what you'd probably find with most researchers who are at that level, you just really can't let go of things because it's an evolving thought process. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to park it for a month and then come back to it. You know, it, 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 it's a sort of passion that you have for 
these are the issues and, and, and here's, here's how you might look at that. And I found that that's what defines, I think, academics in, in their own right. They, they suddenly tell you, yeah, at eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, I'm talking to X about why, and I don't even quite know why, but we're still interested in these issues. And what about coming back to, to the office? Were the, I mean, were you involved at, at all in the department's um, COVID safety pre pre precautions, and how, how well did you No, I tended to stay away. I, you, know, there's, you know, there's enough people, I think, in the university to, to be able to evolve and put together the sort of department stuff. I'm, I think, you know, I think it will take time for people to return to normal. We're not there yet. It'll probably be another year in, in, that, um, in that situation. Um, I guess the thing we did in the middle is we did that thing where we got a dog as well. But I guess both my <laughs> girls have left the university and we got the dog and that's making it harder for me to return in some ways. <laughs> Got to find a way of getting them into the department because I think you know that's been a real plus point. I've interviewed somebody in her office with a dog. Yeah. Not in this department. Well, I think I'm a big, a big. I mean, that's the most Im important learning point. Wherever you are, is you've got to even stay in the moment. You've still got to look after yourself. You've got to be out there. So you know, okay, working long days, but I'm still out. I walk the dog for an hour. I look after myself, and I think you've got to do these things, where you just take that bit of time out to keep, uh, keep yourself sane, if you want. Mm, mm, mm. I don't know where the future will lie in terms of where we go next, but I think there'll be significant changes as a result because I think more people want to work from home and be hybrid, won't mm, they, mm, from this point on? And I think that'll have a significant impact. And that's how you alter behaviour. That's one of the key things where we talked about it. Where can you change what happens next with minimal impact on society? Well, actually, asking people to work from home for a couple of weeks is not a big problem because, you know, we've just seen it happen with the rail strike. So there's the way you should be thinking about when you do restrictions. What can you do that actually doesn't really alter the fabric of, of everybody's life but mm. gets us a bit of effect size in slowing down what's going to happen next? Schools, for instance, could you give them an extra week on holiday and get them to do their exams from home? Well, that wouldn't be a big deal. Would it? So you're looking for those little bits that can just subtly gain you a bit of time. And I think that's where we should be smarter going forward in the future. Mm. Yeah, I think I've got the last one. So I think it can be a long answer. We've got time. <laughs> Has the experience of working through COVID changed your attitude or your approach to your work? And, and how would you like to see things change in the future? Yeah, no, I think, I, think, I think it's certainly changed, for me, my position in terms of media profile and out there. I, I mean, I couldn't imagine it would have happened in this way. And it still happens today. It's been interesting. There have been a lot of people come and go on that media journey and profile and policy journey. But actually, somehow I'm still there. And I think that's, I'll stick to the evidence-based approach with that. Um, I'm going to write more. Uh, we took a particular position that, you know, I published enough, I still publish in journals, but actually the days of writing an editorial that has impact, I think, have gone. But actually, if you write a piece in a newspaper and suddenly a million people read it, you can have a significant impact in, in a way that is radically different to anything I've done in the editorial world. And I think... I've enjoyed the challenge of trying to write to the public or write to a wider audience, 
it's not easy. You'll get your people who won't like what you say when you do that, and you have to have your flat jacket on ready. But actually that, I think, is where the future lies, is for scientists to be more communicative with the wider public, put their ideas out there, and try and justify them. And if we do that well, I think there'll be a better, healthier society. And so I'll keep doing that. Um, and I think in terms of the workload, I think with the team, I'm very mindful we're an outcomes oriented unit. And I think we will be more hybrid in the future. Uh, our, our courses are going more online because we one of the things we didn't talk about is our master's in evidence-based healthcare. We had to completely flip it to an online strategy in 14 days. That was pretty stressful as well. And, but the team did an amazing job. But and now we've used an, we've just got approval from Education Policy Committee to increase the number of courses that can be taken online, so students don't have to come here as much. And we think that's a sensible strategy. In the middle of winter, it will be difficult to travel if you're unwell. But also next week we're running a summer school for all the students. There's about 45 coming next week, so we're we're, we're changing the strategy. We think they still want that in the corridor moment, and there's a big appetite for that to come to Oxford. But they may change the nature of when they do that and what suits them. So the flip side is, I still think there's a lot of issues to work through. There's a lot of things to think through in terms of the back backlog now of harms. You know whether it's cancer care and diagnostics, whether it's mental health, whether it's social care, we've got huge problems. And I think they're gonna require a lot of astute thinking going forward. Pete. What? Pete. 